Good day, everyone. It's time for a left after breakfast. Susanna here with you this morning, and I'll be joined by odd and assorted members of my team a little later on. Sometimes it's like a lucky dip. But first of all, you know, I was thinking about the budget, and well, thinking about the budget, and I should apologise for last week when I was waxing lyrical about $250. It was a pretty trivial way to carry on, but it was a pretty trivial sum. I suppose I'll see that the week before the elections. And when are they? 14th of May? Well, I'm betting the 14th of May. But I was, of course, thrilled to hear from Josh Frydenberg, crisis spending is over. And everything is looking really rosy. There's an unemployment rate of 3.75% set to arrive by September. And we are spending far less money on those requiring welfare payments. What a win. Yes, everything looks so rosy. But I wonder really, Frydenberg, what country are you living in? What planet are you on? A Band-Aid budget which tries to address cost-of-living pressures is no match at all for what's needed for addressing the future ahead, especially with inflation rising at 3.5%, so much faster than wages, 2.3%. I wonder if Frydenberg has actually seen those people experiencing floods. I wonder if he's actually considered the COVID-19 positive numbers along with the number of deaths across the states and territories and the stream of families going in and out of isolation. Has he looked to the northern rivers in New South Wales where residents are still without homes from an unprecedented flood crisis just weeks ago and they're being ordered to evacuate it again? Has he looked to those in the frontline services, the aged care workers, the early childhood educators, the nurses, all of whom continue to be underappreciated, underpaid and overworked. Now these may be workers who are not out of work, but they're out of energy and they're out of money to afford the rising costs of living. But the crisis is over, he says, thanks to a remarkable post-pandemic recovery. What country does he live in? I don't think it's this one. Once again, there's a failure to offer any kind of meaningful commitment and contribution on climate change or ambitious targets to significantly reduce emissions, despite Australia being at the coalface of the crisis. We've experienced unprecedented flooding and bushfires just within Scott's last term alone. So we have a strategy based on directionless cash splashes. At the same time, defence spending is soon to reach $50 billion a year. That's more than 2% of our GDP. Put that $50 billion figure in comparison to everything else. There's the $10 billion to be spent on a submarine base, next to the $1 billion that will be slated to protect the Great Barrier Reef. The Great Barrier Reef has just been hit by another mass coral bleaching event. But there's no crisis, remember. 
everything is worrisy. But let's leave the treasurer for a moment and look at the prime minister. A prime minister who lies. His lies cover up a lack of substance and interest in governing. I don't believe the man has any interest in governing at all. And I'm greatly angered, as we all are, at his glib refusal to accept responsibility for anything and his brushing off his most demonstrated lies. We should always remember that Scott comes from a marketing background and he approaches politics as an endless series of marketing problems that can be addressed with announcements and deception rather than with actual policies. He's an advertising man. In her book, Lying in Politics, Hannah Arendt said, The deliberate falsehood and the outright lie, used as legitimate means to achieve political ends, have been with us since the beginning of recorded history. Truthfulness has never been counted among the political virtues, and lies have always been regarded as justifiable tools in political dealing. But we should remember also that a lot of the lies of Scott are really needless, pointless and inconsequential, but they do often regard serious policy matters. I mean silly, childish, inconsequential things. Why did he tell us he just had a chat with Ash Barty on the phone to congratulate her and wish her all the best for the future when he didn't have a chat at all? As Barty said, he left a short message on my message bank. I mean, why bother telling such a stupid lie? He is, by traditional criteria, a poor liar. He doesn't rely on casuistry or, as we say nowadays, weasel words to give himself any wiggle room. He doesn't lie about obscure things that are hard to prove. He doesn't even tell particularly convincing lies. He just glibly comes out with blatantly false statements that are easily shown to be fictitious. In short, he appears not to care about the truth. It's as if something being true is neither here nor there for Scott. Perhaps Scott thinks we're just used to lies. After all, we've put up with quite a few over the years, haven't we? Worldwide lies. Devastating lies. We remember Watergate when it revealed that Nixon knew about break-ins to the Democratic Party headquarters and he directed the FBI not to investigate it and he went on to lie about it and lie about it some more and then lie again. Well, of course, he had to resign. But the biggest lie I can think of of recent years is the invasion of Iraq. I don't like to think of Australia's role in this most catastrophic of decisions, but no one in the coalition of the willing escapes judgment. George Bush and Dick Cheney knowingly lied about Hussein's possession and development of weapons of mass destruction, WMD. Bush said Hussein had a massive stockpile of biological weapons. Former CIA deputy head Michael Morell one of the intelligence briefers for Bush, admits now that Cheney fabricated claims about Hussein's ability to acquire or reconstitute nuclear weapons. And the Shilkert inquiry 
paints a similar picture about the evidence deliberately ignored presented by intelligence agencies to the then UK Prime Minister, Tony Blair. Lies. Outright lies. Of course, knowing that these were all lies means nothing to the people of Iraq, does it? Now, how about John Howard? We've never had a proper inquiry into the circumstances in which he led Australia into the invasion and occupation of Iraq. And the only parliamentary inquiry into the the WMD intelligence failure wasn't given full access to the materials provided to the government. Now, at the very best, at the very, very best, we can say that Howard was guilty of the same gross misjudgment as Blair, and the fault lay as much with their own eagerness for war as any intelligence failure about the threat posed by Saddam Hussein. And Howard, of course, was guilty of making Australia less safe than the threat of terrorism. Howard failed on the most basic responsibility of any leader, keeping his country safe. So the three of them, Bush, Blair and Howard, and other Western leaders like the Spanish Prime Minister Jose Maria Aznar, they are responsible for one of the... Oh, one of the biggest mass slaughters of post-war history, a death toll of Iraqi civilians numbering in the hundreds of thousands, as well as creating conditions for the rise of the Islamic State and the dominance of Iran in that region. They're responsible for all those deaths of army personnel from USA, UK and Australia, apart from the ongoing human toll. None of them have ever faced any accountability for deliberate lying about the need for an attack on Iraq. They still walk free, uncensured, apparently untroubled by the colossal disaster they bequeathed us. If there's no holding to account for an act of mass murder costing hundreds and hundreds of thousands of lives, resulting from deliberate lies one that's cost the West trillions in resources, one that continues to claim the lives of Iraqis and Syrians, former Western military personnel and Western civilians, then what accountability exists at all for political elites? Under what democratic system does John Howard escape even an inquiry into his actions? It could be that Scott believes his lies are so inconsequential next to Howard that he really doesn't care. This could be the reason why he lies all the time. Hardly surprising, really. Snapped in two Words are made to bend Bigger, better so Stolen from Japan Collected from around the world I'll catch you if they can Lights, 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 yeah Yeah. 
what's on your mind? Well, Cleopatra died for Egypt. What a waste of time. The white ones, the red ones, some you can't disguise. Twisted truth and half the news, can't hide it in your eyes. We're less trusting. Most of us recognise nonsense when we see it. I wonder, how do we account for the fact that almost everyone in public life has the same set of preposterous beliefs? Nearly everyone in the media across the entire political spectrum seems to accept that economic growth can and should continue indefinitely on a finite planet. Almost all believe that we should take action to protect life on Earth only when it is cost-effective. Even then, we should avoid compromising the profits of legacy industries. We all seem to believe that something called the economy takes priority over our life support systems. And they further believe that the unhindered acquisition of enormous wealth by a few people is somehow acceptable. They believe that taxes sufficient to break the cycle of accumulation and redistribute extreme wealth are unthinkable. They believe that permitting a handful of offshore billionaires to own the media, set the political agenda and tell us where our best interests lie is just fine. They believe that we should pledge unquestioning allegiance to a system we call capitalism, although they're unable to define it, let alone predict where it might be heading. No terror or torture is required to persuade people to fall into line with these crazed beliefs. 
somehow our system of organised lying has created an entire class of politicians, officials, media commentators, cultural leaders, academics and intellectuals who nod along with them. We have a truth crisis and it's much deeper and wider than we care to admit. It's systemic and just about universal. Uh, good morning, you're listening to 3CR, the only radio left. Good heavens, I don't mean to sound so gloomy. You've been seeing in the mainstream media of late all these allegations about the Liberal pre-selection in 2007 of our Prime Minister, Scott. He says they are bitter and malicious slurs. Well, you could have heard all about this 12 years ago on 3CR on Left After Breakfast. The bagman was quite bitter, though not malicious, about that pre-selection. But anyway, some statuary declarations are circulating which details Scott's battle to become a Liberal MP in 2007. And strangely enough, I think that Scott should be ready to make some more stat declarations while he's about it, don't you? We're happy to help him. So get your pen and paper out, Scott, and you can start taking notes. I, Scott John Morrison of 5 Adelaide Avenue, Deacon, ACT, make the following statutory declaration under the Oaths and Affirmations Act of 2018. 1. During the pre-selection battle that I initially lost to Michael Tauk by 82 votes to 8, I never once hinted to anyone that he may be a Muslim, nor a Mohammedan, nor any other colonial administrated term for an adherent of Islam. 2. I also didn't, while opposition immigration spokesman, urge the shadow cabinet to capitalise on the electorate's growing concern about Muslim immigration, Muslims in Australia. I did bring those things up, but only because I think they are bad and we shouldn't exploit them. And point three for you, Scott. I never once called Labour Senator Sam Dastiari Shanghai Sam in numerous tweets and interviews. No, never. Also, I never said that electric vehicles couldn't tow boats or caravans or reach camping grounds or that Bill Shorten wants to end the weekend. Look, I don't want to go on, but also I never led a government that supported Clive Palmer's High Court action against Western Australia borders. I never said the vaccine rollout wasn't a race. And just so we're clear, I never released a Liberal Party ad trying to claim political points during the catastrophic bushfires in 2019-2020. I also can't recall whether I put forward a 9 billion mass detention plan for asylum seekers living in Australia on bridging visas back when I was Immigration Minister in 2014. I mean, who keeps track of every single billion dollar proposal? 
I never wrecked your relationship with France by failing to let them know important information, like the fact we were going to ditch the deal we had with them over the submarines. I mean, seriously, how could I have done that? And I declare that the contents of this statutory declaration are true and correct. And I make it knowing that making a statutory declaration that I know to be untrue is an offence. Signed, Scott. You're listening to 3CR 855 AM on digital and on the internet, www.3cr.org.au. And I think this is a good time to hear from Natasha. Ode to the Herald Scum. He scowled, looking up from the Herald Scum, stood up and with a rude gesture of the thumb, scanned the faces assembled in the smoko shed. So, fucking unionists got no social conscience, he said, in a voice that boomed around the walls. Well, why does a dog lick his balls? They reckon we're putting millions in our kick. These bastards make me fucking sick. Only looking out for our own and our own members, well... This old dinosaur still remembers. The boys sat in stunned silence. Weeds, the steward, was in full flight. The tabloid press just gave him licence to crank him into another shit fight. He held the newspaper high and drew their attention to all the union heads who got a mention. This is what they're calling... Social responsibility. Are the unions preserving our economic stability? So you have to say, good morning boss, and kiss his ass before you kick it to advance the cause of the working class. Now you have to be a shiny ass with table manners instead of thumping it in the MBA with burly blokes in t-shirts and angry banners. If I've got an attitude, it's no mystery. Just have a gander at some of the history that built this country, stone by stone, from blood on the concrete to the broken bones of our forebears in the construction game. Then tell me why militant unions are to blame for the boom and bust chaos of the capitalist system and in its voracious appetite for profit. Let's list them. I'll take you for a cook's tour of this fair city, but I warn you, some of the stories aren't pretty. Can you tell me the Tollpuddle martyrs' names? George Lovelace and his brothers would not live in chains except those in common unity to preserve their families from degradation. In 1834, sentenced to seven years' transportation to Australia for swearing a union oath, this spirit made them convicts. These convicts fe fed the growth of unionism, declaring that employers, magistrates and parsons would not redress the wrongs that led to starvation wages and the throngs of men, women and children in forced labour. But the union was there as your ally, as your neighbour. In 1856 we got the call again at the Melbourne University site 
where 700 men downed tools, resolving to stay out till they won the eight-hour day. For like tomorrow's dawn, they cried, we won't just go away. When the rule of law is coercive, those under its yoke turn subversive. When the past instructs the way ahead, who are rebels today, tomorrow are heroes instead. We have always taken to the streets before the politicians and judges declared our battle law. I'll take you back to May 1969 when Clary O'Shea refused to pay the fine imposed by Menzies' penal powers. It was Labor's finest hour after nationwide strike action paralysed production because the Tramways Union Secretary found in contempt of court was thrown into jail by Mr Justice Kerr who thought he could stand over workers and cut wages and conditions. But after six days and 13 years of struggle the admission of an unjust law. So from black bands were born green bands to prevent our heritage being torn down. If it weren't for builders' labourers, would this state now have the landmarks you see in the CBD from the Westgate? Flinders Street Railway Station, Melbourne City Baths, Queen Victoria Market, Royal Botanical Gardens, the Princess and Regent Theatres. Unionists are a greedy mob, we're told, but with no demo work, it wasn't easy being green in the old. The brand name on your work gear, Airport Alliance, now a fashion statement in recent times, an act of defiance against Reith's laws enforced by goons in balaclavas and dogs at Webb Dock, an attack on one that saw the gathering of the clans, arms locked in active unionism, to fuel the fire from out the ashes as the phoenix arises. Solidarity is the spark that inspires union everywhere. Like the barricade of Garuda, boycott Bali, day after day, as more blood was shed in Dili, to hold the line until I saw Janana wave from the departure gate. I'll take that to my grave. There's no sign on the gate, only militants apply. You don't have to be a silver tongue to act in reply. It's the stewards, the face of the union, not the head. That's what you butt or hold proudly when you're not in bed with the bosses, but staunch, struggling together on joint site issues like safety or inclement weather or taking action in campaigns that are industry-wide. Whatever your union, here we fight side by side. So next time you read the Herald Scum for news, don't forget your history or they'll use you, then wipe you like a dirty rag. He threw the paper like a missile between the boys in the crane crew through the dunny door. It just missed the plasterers. 
This filthy rag's not fit to wipe your fucking asses. You could hear a pin drop as weeds ended his journey through their common ancestry. They sat amazed at the heritage defended in a pride of place that is this nation's history. Thank you, Comrade Natasha. And now for some little light relief. A musical interlude with a Scottish song that people think is lovely. They think it's about boys and girls making love by the banks of a lake. But it's actually not. It's not a love song at all, but it's a song from the Jacobite Rebellion. And after the Battle of Culloden, the last serious battle of the war between Scotland and England, a great number of who the English referred to as the ringleaders of the Scottish Rebellion and who the Scots referred to as the young, brave heroes, were taken to London for a series of show trials. While they were waiting for their trials, many members of their families came down from Scotland to London, and they all walked that distance, and the wives were all there, and the girlfriends and the family members, their mothers and their friends and everything else. But they were all found guilty, and they were all executed in the vilest means possible. Once the acts of execution were complete, in order to be an example to anyone else likely to step out of line, the bodies of these men, and bits and pieces of these men, and most particularly the heads of these men, were put on tops of spikes and exhibited in all the towns between London and Glasgow in a monstrous procession. And in the meantime, all the families returned to Scotland by exactly the same method in which they had arrived. So when you're talking about you take the high road and I'll take the low road, the high road meant the bodies of the men who were going to be exhibited were taken by coach on the most important road in the country. And the ordinary poor people of Scotland who'd seen their men folk die in, oh, in such circumstances... They all had to shuffle back home by the ordinary low road that the ordinary working people had to use. So that's how it was. And that's what this song is about. By yon bonnie banks and by yon bonnie breeze Where the sun shines bright on Loch Lomond Where me and my true Love will never meet again on the bunny, bunny banks of Loch Lomond. Oh, you take the high road and I'll take the low road and I'll be in Scotland afore But me and my true love will Again on the bunny, bunny banks of Loch Lomond. Twas there that we parted in yon shady glen on the steep, steep sides of Ben. Purple hue, the high 
I hope I find you bright-eyed and bushy-tailed this morning. Just as you are. Just like I always am, Susan. I've, uh, I'm back on my feet again. I'm getting my health back. So some people better look out. Yeah, how about a bit of satire? And who better at satire than the Prime Minister of this country, Scott Morrison? He recently said, you, do you have trouble renting a house? His answer was, buy one. Now, I would say to him, and you may have the answer to this, Susan, trouble winning an election? Well, the obvious answer is buy one. Well, he could always enlist Clive Palmer to give him a hand. Oh, well, yes, uh, well, we don't want to get in the Clive Palmer Road uh, this morning, but I do want to be a bit serious here. Now, I'm not being pro-Russian and I'm not being pro-Ukrainian because what I said last week is war is a place where young people who don't know each other and don't hate each other kill each other by decisions of old people who know and hate each other but don't kill each other. That's a very important quote, Susan. I'm sure you'll agree with it. I do. All right, but I've got to ask, did I miss an important event back in 2003? Because I'm, in my head, something says... Did I miss something now? Maybe you can jog my memory if we go back to 2003. Well, go on. Go on then. Well, 
did I miss the address to the Australian Parliament of the leader of Iraq pleading for support not to have his country invaded and his people massacred by American and Allied forces? Let me give you a quote here in inverted commas. The invasion of Iraq was neither in self-defence against armed attack nor sanctioned by the United Nations Security Council resolution authorising the use of force by member states and thus constituted a crime of aggression. Now, that's according, according to the International Commission of Jurists. Who are you and me to disagree with what they've said? Well, I don't. That's right. And, and, and we go even further because according to Colin Powell and Condoleezza Rice, Iraq also had mobile weapons of mass destruction, a truck containing a chemical weapons to use against its own people. Now, the United Nations inspection found absolutely no evidence of weapons of mass destruction. Yet the Americans and the Allied forces invaded their country and killed their people. Uh, they bombed their mosques, they bombed their hospitals and whatever. And we all know now that the massacre of the Iraq people was based on a big lie. It was a, re a regime change in our Iraq oil fueling this illegal invasion. Now, we hear uh, calls by the Allied forces, the Americans, the Australians and the UK, um, calling for Putin to be charged with war crimes. But Bush, Tony Blair and our own Prime Minister, John Howard, are guilty of war crimes according to the International Commission of jurors. Now, the reason I raise that, Susan, is because the Americans and the Allied forces are supporting a Christian country, Ukraine. But when it came to bombing Iraq and Libya and Afghanistan, they were only bombing Muslims. And they really didn't care about how the people suffered and they got no, or absolutely no, uh, publicity about how they were suffering, where they were suffering, how many refugees there were. If you add that to the publicity that's being created now, the Russians can uh, say, we didn't do this, we didn't do that, but the Western media says, yes, you did, and we find you guilty. We'll give you a fair trial and we'll hang you. I just reckon the Western media have got to be very careful about what they say and what they do because they are supposed to be impartial. But as I said, it was one Christian country that's now being invaded by the Western forces. But when it came time for Iraq and Afghanistan, they really didn't care at all. War is a filthy business, and I don't think at this stage, we should be taking sides. Um, it's a filthy business, always will be. 
and it's always working people that end up dead. I'd like to know who's making the most money out of it. Oh, well, the arms manufacturers have always made money out of war, Susan, and that's why Western countries involve themselves in other countries. When they invaded Libya, did they give Muhammad Gaddafi a chance to go before the for the world parliament to say these people are involved in regime, regime change and want to kill me? No, they didn't. And we know who made money there. I've had the opportunity uh, in the 1980s to visit Libya, uh, where they had free health care, they had free education, and they had a very, very high standard of living, and there was no people opposed to Muhammad Gaddafi. Uh, it was only brought about by the Western forces influencing themselves in that country. <sighs> I put a lot of it down to Rupert Murdoch. Oh, well, you could, Susan. You would probably be right. Now, here's a quote for you. Guess who said this? It's, it's in your court. A people that elect corrupt politicians, imposters, thieves and traitors are not victims but accomplices. I think it was a, probably set around about 1984. But uh, I'll let you mull over that for a while, Susan. I think everyone knows. Yeah, I think I think they do. Yeah, I don't think they're as smart as builders' labourers, but they would have got that. Now, I want to go on to something that affects me and affects my family. And I got a, an email from Jan Miller. Uh, who has worked in the trade union movement and has worked in the um, in the hospital union field. And she says, I'm sorry. I'm sorry that people are tired of he hearing this. I'm sorry that we have not kept to a zero COVID policy. Victoria has recorded more than 10,000 new corona cases today. And some of our closest comrades, uh, Susan, uh, are now suffering from COVID uh, that's been inflicted on us by people who refuse to get vaccinated, who assaulted doctors and nurses, who assaulted our other frontline forces and whatever. And the, the main thing is, Susan, that people are still dying. Now, as I said many times, Dead, dead is the new normal. And I feel that I've, we've been let down by our government, our state government too, who fought for many years, for quite a few years to keep COVID out of the, uh, out of the state. Uh, we're finally bludgeoned by Scott Morrison and his federal government to ease the restrictions that we, uh, we now I was going to say enjoy, but not enjoy, but endure. Thousands and thousands and thousands of people are catching COVID as we speak. And not hundreds, but dozens, dozens of people are dying 
on a daily basis. How can we possibly accept that dead is the new normal? Oh, but the economy, Batman, the economy. <laughs> that's, well, that's a stupid thing about it, Susan. It's the economy, stupid, because we can't have people suffering uh, when businesses are not open as opposed to people who are dying in our hospitals being cared for by the frontline troops, the nurses, the doctors, and every person that works in the hospital system at the same time. It really does make me worry. Never understand why people are dying and people who are unvaccinated allowed to walk the streets infecting other people and killing them at the same time. But that's all I say on COVID at the moment, Susan, because it riles me up. I, it, it almost curls my hair. Really? <laughs> well, if you do know me, there's not much chance of curling my hair. Can we go back to Scott Morrison? Have you ever signed a statutory declaration? <laughs> well, I don't believe that Scott Morrison will ever sign a statutory declaration that he didn't play on race during the Cook pre-selections. It's not illegal to lie in politics. But as we've witnessed on numerous occasions over the last couple of decades, it is illegal to lie in a statutory declaration. Now, anybody can sign a statutory declaration. I signed one oh, 30 years ago to say I had a cold and couldn't come to work. I was offered the races. Yeah, statutory declaration means absolutely nothing. <laughs> yes. I can't recall when I've ever signed one, but I must have somewhere in my life. Oh, you would have signed one somewhere along the line and you probably would have signed it uh, with a smirk on your face. And my tongue firmly planted in my <laughs> cheek. Anyway, he's got a new nickname, uh, Susan. They call, him, they call him Blister. You know why they, they call him Blister? Blister? Blister. Why do they call him Blister. Because he only appears after all the hard work has been done. Ah, I see. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, look, Susan, I am full of quotes today. I'm not full of angst and I'm not full of bile because I recently had my gallbladder out, so I don't produce bile anymore. But here is a famous quote from Mark Twain. Now, that's taking us way back down, the, down memory lane. And Mark Twain said, if you don't read the newspaper, you are uninformed. If you do read the newspaper, you are misinformed. You mentioned Mr Murdoch only a minute or so ago. I did. People should be listening to 3CR and other non-commercial stations and reading newspapers which are not owned by Rupert Murdoch. That's right, but unfortunately people do and people read the Herald Sun and all the other uh, rags that uh, he produces 
and uh, they fall in because they are uninformed in the first place and then they become misinformed by reading the garbage that the Murdoch press puts out. Now, who said you couldn't do it? Said you couldn't do it? Yeah. Who said you couldn't form yourself a union and organising a union? Chris Smalls, this is in America, who was fired by Amazon in 2020 for union organising, is now president of the Amazon Labor Union. It says that it still can be done. And it says that we can still have fighting unions in this country. If we have genuine unions with genuine leadership and they become fighting unions, then uh, we wouldn't have something like 10 years of wage stagnation that we've had for workers uh, that we're experiencing now. Yes, that was amazing. He has to thank uh, Jeff Bezos. He, he, has... he sent himself into space, believe it or not. He went somewhere where billionaires never go. Well, I'll tell you another place where billionaires never go, and that's a taxation office. Oh, golly, bagman. <laughs> but it's so uh... true. It's so true. But they were very happy when Bezos took himself off into space because then they could start a union. That's right, and they have, and they're representing the majority of people in uh, the Amazon empire, and they will continue, and they'll go from strength to strength because the working conditions at Amazon, from what I've read, fairly substandard. Substandard is a very nice way of putting it. Yes, talk about, oh, you know, it, it hits you in the face every day. Talk about people that uh, are like rats deserting a sh sinking ship. Uh, Catherine Cusack, uh, who has come out this week, uh, she says that she is resigning from being a Liberal Member of Parliament because of the way she has been treated. You know, you take into account Barnaby Joyce said he's a hypocrite and a liar. Gladys Berejiklian said a horrible, horrible person. Uh, and even Malcolm Turnbull, a former Liberal Prime Minister, said Scott has always had a reputation for telling lies. <laughs> Well, he has. I was just talking earlier about lying in politics is systemic in our society. Oh, it's yes. universal. Yes. Well, it sort of goes with the territory, Susan, doesn't it? When good people come from a community to represent the people that they uh, in their community, they end up being part of the same corrupt system. And because we have to record this program, I know that you do your show, your program live, but we have to record this part of the, uh, uh, the interview on a Wednesday afternoon um, for replaying on Friday morning and we can't go to the studio because of COVID. It might be 
that between this Wednesday and this Friday, Scott Morrison may go to Government Health and say, please let me call an election because I am in more shit than a Werribee duck. He's holding off as long as he can, but I put my money on the 14th of May. Oh, there you go, 14th of May. Well, can we make that a nostril anus prediction? Because I think, I reckon that he will go to Parliament House this weekend and uh, plead with the Governor-General to call an election. And I think that will be the end of Scott Morrison as we know him. Who is the Governor-General at the moment? Can you remember? I wouldn't have a a clue. No idea. Um, That isn't it. The only Governor-General I remember was Peter Crosagrove, who was involved in that uh, the allegations of mistreatment of um, war victims in East Timor. Otherwise, I wouldn't have a clue. Well, I'll tell you, he's, he's a general, a former general. A general, an army man. David Hurley. Oh, good. Yeah. Another, what do you mean? I'm fighting back now, Susan. Another ex-general. Ah, right. It's all coming back. It's all floating around in my head, and I have a lot of shit floating around inside my head. Let me tell you what good governments do. Dan Andrews, the Premier of Victoria, has put out a statement that your birth certificate should reflect who you are, every part of you. And he says, that's why we've introduced legislation to recognise birth parents and adoptive parents on birth certificates. He says it's what Victorians who were forcibly adopted want, and it's the right thing to do. Now, when we criticise all politicians, don't criticise them all. Some of them do a very, very good job. Yes, though, unfortunately, Dan Andrews has fallen somewhat in my estimation of late, but I won't forget ever the job he did during the pandemic and how he fought so hard to keep Victorians safe. Oh, I agree with you, Susan. He fought incredibly hard. But in the end, the federal government and the New South Wales government brought him down uh, by easing restrictions that uh, the Victorian government couldn't combat. Yeah, there's a bit more, but I won't go into it. All right. Well, we could go into that in a future program. If you like, Susan. I will, but the, the time's getting on that I'm watching it. Yeah, well, I must tell you, Susan, that uh, I'm not too sure of the time, but we are about to receive some guests at the front door. So if you hear the doorbell ringing, you'll know that it's time to say, let's go out in the same old way. Have you looked at the Collingwood clock this morning? I have, just a minute ago, and it's about that time. All right. If, it is, if it's about that time, let's go out in the same old way. Oh, why not? Dare to struggle? Dare to win. If you don't fight? 
you lose. Good morning from Left After Breakfast. Yes, good morning from Left After Breakfast. And I can't say I'll see you same time, same place next week because we won't be here. It will be Good Friday and as always on a Good Friday I'll for more years than I can remember. This time slot and other morning time slot go to the Tamils. But we'll catch you soon in two weeks' time.